October 1, 1946, would be the day of reckoning for the remnants of Hitler's Reich cabinet. On this day, the 218th day of proceedings, the Nazi hierarchy would hear the judges' summation, their verdict, and then their punishments. Chief Justice Lawrence began by stating that, quote, in accordance with Article 27 of the Charter, the International Military Tribunal will now pronounce the sentences on the defendants convicted on these indictments. And as with everything prior, Gehring was the first one addressed by the judges. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. The Nuremberg Trials. Prosecuting Nazi Atrocities. Part 7. Quote, Defendant Hermann Goering, you're indicted on all four counts. The evidence shows that after Hitler, you were the most prominent man in the Nazi regime. Goering was commander-in-chief of the Luftwaffe, plenipotentiary of the four-year plan, and had tremendous influence with Hitler himself. He persecuted the Jews, and not only in Germany, but in the conquered territories as well. Although their extermination was in Himmler's hands, Goering was far from a disinterested party as he directed the SS to, quote, bring about a complete solution of the Jewish question in the German sphere of influence within Europe. There is nothing to be said in mitigation, for Goering was often, and indeed almost always, the moving force, second only to his Führer. He was the leading war aggressor, both as a political and as a military leader. He was the director of the slave labor program and the creator of the oppressive program against the Jews, crimes that he has frankly admitted. The broad outline of his own admissions are more than sufficiently wide to be conclusive of his guilt, and his guilt is uniquely enormous. The record discloses no excuses for this man. Defendant Hermann Goering, on counts 1, 2, 3, and 4 of the indictment on which you have been convicted, the International Military Tribunal sentences you to death by hanging. The next defendant to rise in the dock was Rudolf Hess. He had been rocking back and forth nervously since the defendants entered the courtroom and was overtly worried about the judgment at hand. The tribunal then spoke, quote, As deputy to the Fuhrer, Hess was the top man in the Nazi party with responsibility for handling all party matters, and he had authority to make decisions in Hitler's name on all questions of party leadership. As Reich Minister without portfolio, he had the authority to approve all legislation suggested by the different Reich ministries before it could be enacted as law. In these positions, Hess was an active supporter of preparations for war and, of all the defendants, None knew better than Hess how determined Hitler was to realize his ambitions. How fanatical and violent a man he was, and how likely he was to utilize force 
if this was the only way in which he could achieve his aims. That Hess acts in an abnormal manner, suffers from memory loss, and has mentally deteriorated during this trial, this may be true, but there is nothing to show that he does not realize the nature of the charges against him or is incapable of defending himself. And there is no suggestion that Hess was not completely sane when the acts charged against him were indeed committed. Defendant Rudolf Hess, the tribunal finds you guilty on counts 1 and 2 and not guilty on counts 3 and 4 of the indictments. You are hereby sentenced to life in prison. End quote. The next Nazi to hear the judgment rendered upon him was the Graying Field Marshal, Wilhelm Keitel. He rose to order when his name was called and stood like a statuesque, dutiful, and unnerved soldier. He coldly stared down the judges while his sentence was read aloud. Quote, Keitel directed that Russian prisoners of war be used in the German war industry. On September 8, 1942, he ordered French, Dutch, and Belgian citizens to work on the Atlantic Wall. He was present on January 4, 1944, when Hitler directed Sokol to obtain 4 million new workers from the occupied territories. And when faced with these documents and his atrocities, Keitel does not deny his connection with these acts. Rather, his defense relies on the fact that he is a soldier and on the doctrine of superior orders. This is strictly prohibited by Article 8 of the Charter as a defense. There is nothing in mitigation. Superior orders, even to a soldier, cannot be considered in mitigation where crimes so shocking and extensive have been committed so consciously, ruthlessly, and without military excuse or justification. Defendant Wilhelm Keitel, on counts 1, 2, 3, and 4 of the indictment on which you have been convicted, the tribunal sentences you to death by hanging. Ribbentrop was next, and to a great many in the courtroom looked as if he already had a noose upon his neck. Sweating, eyes unable to concentrate, and fidgety, Ribbentrop arose to hear his fate. Quote, Ribbentrop played a uniquely significant role in the diplomatic activity which led up to the attack on Poland. The way in which he carried out these discussions makes it clear that he did not enter into them in good faith, nor did any attempt to reach a settlement of the difficulties between Germany and Poland. Ribbentrop was advised in advance of the attack on Norway, Denmark, and the Low Countries. He thus prepared the official Foreign Office Memoranda attempting to justify these aggressive actions. He additionally played an important part in Hitler's final solution of the Jewish question. He's quoted as saying, the Jews must either be exterminated or taken to the concentration camps. Ribbentrop's defense to the charges made against him is that Hitler made all the important decisions, that he was such a great admirer and faithful follower of Hitler that he never questioned his repeated assertions that he wanted peace truth, or the renunciation of planning aggressive action. The tribunal does not consider this explanation to be true. Ribbentrop participated in all of the Nazi aggressions. There is abundant evidence, moreover, 
that Ribbentrop was in complete sympathy with all the main tenets of the National Socialist creed. That his collaboration with Hitler and with the other defendants in the Commission of Crimes Against Peace, War Crimes and Crimes Against Humanity was wholehearted. It was because Hitler's plans coincided with his own ideas that Ribbentrop served him so willingly to the bitter end. Defendant Joachim von Ribbentrop, on counts 1, 2, 3, and 4 of the indictment on which you have been convicted, the tribunal sentences you to death by hanging. The judges continued on with the ranking SS man in the dock. Quote, Ernst Keltenbrunner joined the Austrian Nazi party in 1932. In 1935, he became the leader of the SS in Austria. And after the Anschluss, he was appointed Austrian State Secretary for Security, and when this position was abolished in 1941, he was made head of the Reich Security Office and held the rank of Obergruppenführer. During the period in which Kaltenbrunner was head of the RSHA, it was engaged in a widespread program of war crimes and crimes against humanity. These crimes included the mistreatment and murder of prisoners of war. Einsatzkommandos, operating under the control of the Gestapo, were engaged in the screening of Soviet war prisoners. Jews, commissars, and others who were thought to be ideologically hostile to the Nazi system were reported to him, which he then transferred to a concentration camp and murdered. The murder of approximately 4 million Jews in concentration camps has heretofore been described. This part of the program was also under the supervision of the Reich Security Office when Kaltenbrunner was head of that organization. And special missions of the RSHA scoured the occupied territories and the various Axis satellite states, arranging for the deportation of Jews to these extermination institutions. Kaltenbrunner was deeply informed of these activities. It is true that he showed a special interest in matters involving foreign intelligence, but he also exercised control over the activities of the RSHA, was aware of the crimes it was committing, and he was an active participant in many of them. Defendant Ernst Kaltenbrunner, you have been found not guilty on count one, but guilty on counts three and four of the indictment on which you have been convicted. The tribunal sentences you to death by hanging. Next to stand at the scales of justice was defendant Alfred Rosenberg. The party philosopher was now to hear his fate. Quote, defendant Rosenberg is indicted on all four counts. He joined the Nazi party in 1919 and participated in the Munich push of November 9, 1923. Furthermore, he tried to keep the illegal Nazi party together while Hitler was in jail. He was widely recognized as the party's ideologist, and he developed and spread Nazi doctrines in newspapers and wrote numerous books about the subjects. His book, Myth of the 20th Century, had a circulation of over a million copies. Rosenberg is responsible for a system of organized plunder of both public and private property throughout the invaded countries of Europe. He organized and directed the, quote, Einsatzstab Rosenberg, which plundered museums and libraries, confiscated art treasures and collections, and pillaged private residences. Rosenberg had knowledge of the brutal treatment and terror to which the Eastern people were subjected. 
he directed that the Hague rules of land warfare were not applicable in the occupied Eastern territories. He had knowledge of and took an active part in stripping the Eastern territories of raw materials and foodstuffs, in which were sent to Germany directly. Upon occasion, Rosenberg objected to the excesses and atrocities committed by his subordinates, but these excesses continued and he stayed in office until the very end. Defendant Alfred Rosenberg, on counts 1, 2, 3, and 4 of the indictment on which you have been convicted, the tribunal sentences you to death by hanging. The defiant and racist propagandist was next to rise. With a gleam of contempt in his eyes, he stood tall with his shoulders squared before the tribunal. Quote, Defendant Stryker was a staunch Nazi and a supporter of Hitler's main policies. There is no evidence to show that he was ever within Hitler's inner circle of advisors, nor during his career was he closely connected with the formulation of the policies which led to war. In the opinion of the tribunal, the evidence fails to establish his connection with the conspiracy to wage aggressive war as that conspiracy has been elsewhere defined in this judgment. For his 25 years of speaking, writing, and preaching hatred of the Jews, Stryker was widely known as Jew-baiter number one. He infected the German mind with the virus of anti-Semitism and incited the German people to active persecution. Each issue of Der Sturmer, which reached a circulation of 600,000 in 1935, was filled with lewd and disgusting content. In the face of the evidence before the tribunal, it is idle for Stryker to suggest that the solution of the Jewish problem which he favored was strictly limited to the classification of the Jews as aliens and the passing of discriminatory legislation, such as the Nuremberg Laws, which would be supplemented if possible by international agreement on the creation of a Jewish state somewhere in the world to which all Jews should emigrate. Stryker's incitement to murder and extermination at the time when the Jews in the East were being killed under the most horrible conditions clearly constitutes persecution on political and racial grounds. These are in connection with war crimes as defined by the Charter and thus constitute a crime against humanity. Defendant Julius Stryker, you have been found not guilty on count one, but on count four of the indictment on which you have been convicted, the tribunal sentences you to death by hanging. Karl Dönitz was the next on the docket. He stood as a proud seaman of the German Navy who felt relatively assured he would be exonerated by the proceedings. Quote, Herr Dönitz, you have been indicted on counts 1, 2, and 3. In 1935, Dönitz took command of the first U-boat flotilla commissioned since 1918 and became commander in 1936 of the submarine arm, was made vice admiral in 1940, admiral in 1942, and on the 30th of January, 1943, commander in chief of the German Navy. And finally, on May 1st, 1945, he officially became the head of state, succeeding Hitler after his suicide. Although Dönitz built and trained the German U-boat arm, the evidence does not show he was privy to the conspiracy to wage aggressive wars, or that he prepared and initiated such wars. He was a line officer performing strictly tactical duties. He was not present at the important conferences when plans for aggressive wars were announced, and there is no evidence that he was informed about the decisions reached therein. 
Donetsk did, however, wage aggressive war within the meaning of that word as used by the Charter. The prosecution insisted that the measures referred to meant that the convention should not be denounced, but should be broken at will. The defense explanation is that Hitler wanted to break the convention for two reasons. One, to take away from German troops the production of the convention, thus preventing them from continuing to surrender in large groups to the British and Americans, but also two, to permit reprisals against Allied prisoners of war because of the Allied bombing raids. Dönitz claims that what he meant by measures were disciplinary measures against German troops to prevent them from surrendering and had no reference to measures against the Allies. That this was merely a suggestion and that in any such event, no measures were ever taken either against Allies or Germans. The tribunal, however, does not believe this explanation. The Geneva Convention was not, however, denounced by Germany. The defense has introduced several affidavits to prove that British naval prisoners of war in camps under Donitz were treated strictly according to the convention, and the tribunal takes this fact into consideration and regards it as a mitigating circumstance. Defendant Karl Donitz, you have been found not guilty on count one, but on counts two and three on the indictment on which you have been convicted, the tribunal sentences you to 10 years in prison. Following Donitz was the case of fellow Navyman Eric Radar. The tribunal judges read his verdict. Quote, Defendant Radar is indicted on counts 1, 2, and 3. In 1928, he became chief of naval command, and in 1939, Hitler made him gross admiral. He was a member of the Reich Defense Council, and in 1943, Donitz replaced him at his own request, and he became Admiral Inspector of the Navy, a nominal title. In the 15 years he commanded it, Radar built and directed the German Navy. He accepts full responsibility until retirement in 1943. He admits the Navy violated the Versailles Treaty, insisting it was, quote, a matter of honor for every man to do so, unquote. And he alleges that the violations were for the most part minor, and Germany built less than her allowable strength. The most serious charge against Radar is that he carried out unrestricted submarine warfare including the sinking of unarmed merchant ships, of neutrals, and the machine gunning of survivors, all contrary to the London Protocol of 1936. The tribunal makes the same finding on radar on this charge as it did to Donitz, which has already been announced. The commando order of October 18, 1942, which expressly did not apply to naval warfare, was transmitted to the naval war staff to the lower naval commanders with the direction that it should be distributed orally by flotilla leaders and section commanders to their subordinates. Two commandos were put to death by the Navy and not by the SD at the Bordeaux on December of 1942. The comment of the naval war staff was that this was, quote, in accordance with the Fuhrer's special order, but is nevertheless something new in international law since the soldiers were in uniform." Unquote. Radar admits that he passed the order down through the chain of command, and he did not object to Hitler's order. Defendant Eric Radar, on counts 1, 2, and 3 of the indictment on which you have been convicted, the tribunal sentences you to imprisonment for life. 
the next to rise to hear his destiny, was Chief of Operations for High Command Alfred Yodel. Facing a possible execution, he stood slowly and resolutely to hear his destiny. Quote, Alfred Yodel is indicted on all four counts. From 1935 to 1938, he was Chief of the National Defense Section of the High Command. After a year in command of troops, in August 1939, he returned to become Chief of Operations for High Command. And although his immediate superior was Defendant Keitel, he reported directly to Hitler on operational matters. In the strict military sense, Yodel was the actual planner of the war and responsible in large measure for the strategy and conduct of the operations. Yodel defends himself on the grounds that he was a soldier sworn to obedience and not a politician, and that his staff and planning work left him no time for other matters. He said that when he signed or initialed orders, memoranda, and letters, he did so for Hitler and often in the absence of Keitel. Though he additionally claims that as a soldier, he was obliged to obey Hitler. His defense, in brief, is the doctrine of superior orders, prohibited by Article 8 of the Charter as a defense. There is nothing in mitigation. Participation in such crimes as these have never been required of any soldier, and he cannot now shield himself behind a mythical requirement of solidarity, of soldierly obedience at all costs, as his excuse for commission of these crimes. Defendant Alfred Yodel, on counts 1, 2, 3, and 4 of the indictment on which you have been convicted, the tribunal sentences you to death by hanging. The former Austrian Nazi Arthur Seiss Inquart then arose to hear his fate. Quote, One of Inquart's first steps as Reich Commissioner of the Netherlands was to put into effect a series of laws imposing economic discriminations against the Jews. This was followed by decrees requiring their registration, decrees compelling them to reside in ghettos, to wear the Star of David, to be subject to sporadic arrests and detention in concentration camps, and finally, the mass deportation of 85% of Holland's Jews to Auschwitz, and the final solution. Inquart admits knowing that they were going to Auschwitz, but claims that he heard from people who had been to Auschwitz that the Jews were comparatively well off there, and that he thought that they were going to be held there for resettlement after the war. In light of the evidence and on account of his official position, it is impossible to believe this claim. Inquart contends that he was not responsible for many of the crimes committed in the occupation of the Netherlands because they were either ordered from the Reich, committed by the army, or by the German SS and police, whom he claims reported directly to Himmler. It is true that some of the excesses were the responsibility of the army, and that the higher SS and police leadership, although at his disposal, could always report directly to Himmler. It is also true that, in certain cases, Inquart opposed the extreme measures used against these agencies as when he was largely successful in preventing the army from carrying out a scorched-earth policy. He also urged the higher SS and police leadership to reduce the number of hostages that were to be shot. 
but the fact remains that Inquart was a knowing and voluntary participant in war crimes and crimes against humanity, which were committed in the occupation of the Netherlands. Defendant Arthur Seiss Inquart, on counts 2, 3, and 4 of the indictment on which you have been convicted, the tribunal sentences you to death by hanging. Next was the seemingly sympathetic figure of Albert Speer, one who, unlike most of his co-defendants, presented an air of regret and sorrow during the proceedings. He was read his judgment. Quote, Albert Speer is indicted under all four counts. The tribunal is of the opinion that Speer's activities do not amount to initiating, planning, or preparing wars of aggression or of conspiring to that end. He became the head of the armament industry well after the wars had been commenced. His activities in charge of German armament production were an aid of the war effort in the same way that other productive enterprises aid in the waging of war. But this tribunal is not prepared to find that such activities involve engaging in the common plan to wage aggressive war, as charged under Count 1, or waging aggressive war, as under Charge 2. Speer's position was such that he was not directly concerned with the cruelty in the administration of the slave labor program, although he was well aware of its existence. At a meeting of the Central Planning Board on the 30th of October 1942, Speer voiced his opinion that many slave laborers who claimed to be sick were lazy and stated, quote, There is nothing to be said against SS and police taking drastic steps and putting those known as slackers into the camps. End quote. Speer, however, insisted that the slave laborers be given adequate food and working conditions so that they could work efficiently. But, in mitigation, it must be recognized that Speer's establishment of blocked industries did keep many laborers in their homes. And in the closing stages of the war, he was one of the few men who had the courage to tell Hitler that the war was lost and to take steps to prevent the senseless destruction of production facilities both in occupied territories and in Germany itself. He carried out his opposition to Hitler's scorched earth program in some of the Western countries and in Germany by deliberately sabotaging it at considerable personal risk to himself. Defendant Albert Speer, you have been found not guilty on counts one and two, but on counts three and four of the indictment on which you have been convicted, the tribunal sentences you to 20 years in prison. Rounding out the judgment day was the missing and presumably dead party secretary, Martin Bormann. And although not present for the trial, his verdict was read out in absentia. Quote, Defendant Bormann is indicted on counts 1, 3, and 4. He joined the National Socialist Party in 1925, was a member of the staff of the Supreme Command of the SA from 1928 to 1930. He was in charge of the aid fund of the party and was Reichsleiter from 1933 to 1945. Until 1941, he was Chief of Staff in the office of the Führer's Deputy and, after the flight of Hesse to England, became Head of the Party Chancellery on 12th of May, 1941. In April of 1943, 
he became secretary to the Führer. He was political and organizational head of the Volkssturm and a general in the SS. Bormann was extremely active in the persecution of the Jews, not only in Germany, but also in the conquered countries. He took part in the discussions which led to the removal of 60,000 Jews from Vienna to Poland in cooperation with the SS and the Gestapo. He signed the decree of May 31, 1941, extending the Nuremberg Laws to the annexed Eastern Territories. Bormann was prominent in the slave labor program. Bormann is responsible for the lynching of Allied airmen. In May of 1944, he prohibited any police action or criminal proceedings against persons who had taken part in the lynching of Allied pilots. This was accompanied by a Goebbels propaganda campaign inciting the German people to take action of this nature, and the conference of June 1944, where regulations for the application of lynching were discussed. Council has argued that Bormann is dead and that the tribunal should not avail itself of Article 12 of the Charter, which gives it the right to take proceedings in absentia. But the evidence of death is not yet conclusive, and the tribunal, as previously stated, is determined to try him in absentia. If Bormann is not dead and is later apprehended, the Control Council for Germany may, under Article 29 of the Charter, consider any facts in mitigation and alter or reduce his sentence, if deemed proper. Defendant Martin Bormann, you have been found not guilty on count one, but on counts three and four of the indictment on which you have been convicted, the tribunal sentences you to death by hanging, in absentia. Of the remaining defendants, three were acquitted of all charges and released into freedom. These were Franz von Papen, the former chancellor prior to Hitler, Hans Frische, the radio commentator and propaganda ministry personnel, and Helmar Schott, prominent banker and economist who was himself liberated by American troops at a concentration camp in May of 1945. This was for his alleged role in the assassination attempt against Hitler. Balder von Schirach, Konstantin von Neurath, and Walter Funk were all sentenced to imprisonment for their roles in the Nazi hierarchy. 15, 20, and a life sentence, respectively. And the remaining men of Hans Frank, Hans Frische, Wilhelm Frick, and Fritz Sockel were also to be hanged for their crimes against humanity and conspiring to wage aggressive warfare. After it was all said and done, 11 of the highest-ranking Nazis were sentenced to death, a judgment that would be carried out in a very timely fashion. A mere two weeks after the conclusion of the trial and the judge's final bang of the gavel, the men who were convicted under the tribunal powers were faced with their destiny. Tasked with performing the executions that fateful October night was U.S. Army veteran John C. Woods. He joined the armed services in 1929, but went AWOL after only a few short months and was diagnosed by a psychiatric panel as having a psychopathic inferiority complex. One of the doctors is quoted as saying of Woods, quote, 
Though not intellectually inferior, he has a history of running counter to authority and does not respond to instruction." Unquote. But after the outbreak of World War II, Woods was once again enlisted to fight for his country. He would go on to serve bravely during the D-Day invasions of 1944, and he additionally threw in an application to be the chief U.S. Army executioner. Although he lied on his resume, stating that he had previous experience as the assistant hangman in Texas and Oklahoma. The historical consensus points towards Woods taking on the job to avoid the possibility of further combat duty with the notable benefit of also tripling his pay. He carried out the hangings of 34 American soldiers during the duration of the war and was later dispatched to Germany to carry out summary executions of Nazis as reprisals for wartime massacres. His efficient work was noticed by the military brass and Lieutenant Stanley Tills eventually tasked Woods to be the Nuremberg hangman. Unfortunately for Woods, he was deprived of one such trophy for his career in executions, Hermann Goering. Just mere hours before the executions were set to take place, the former Reichsmarschall managed to get a hold of a cyanide capsule and take his own life. Much speculation has been put forth as to exactly how Goering was able to receive or hide the cyanide capsules from the prison authorities. The most commonly accepted explanation was that he befriended a jail guard who he then convinced to smuggle it into his cell. Nothing has been conclusively proven, but a few guards have come forward over the years since the trial and claimed responsibility for the event. What is known, though, is that he left a suicide note beside his prison cot and it reads as follows. Quote, I would have had no objection to being shot. However, I will not facilitate the execution of Germany's Reichsmarschall by hanging. For the sake of Germany, I cannot permit this, and moreover, I feel no moral obligation to submit to my enemy's punishment. For these reasons, I have chosen to die like the great Hannibal. Unquote. And with that, the second-in-command of the Nazi Reich was no more. He cheated the hangman's noose by mere hours. His co-defendants did not have this luxury, and if they did, they did not indulge in this kind of death. United States Army Hangman Woods utilized the standard drop method of hanging execution. This is a method where the gallows are constructed with a trap door beneath the victim's feet. When opened, the victim would drop four to six feet with a noose placed around their neck. This is intended to cause an instant break in the person's neck and, once hitting the extent of the rope, causes immediate unconsciousness and rapid brain death. Although the U.S. Army has consistently denied that the Nuremberg executions were botched, many viewing the proceedings disagreed. Observers in the execution room claim the ropes were unusually long and that the nooses weren't tied correctly. When these two factors act in concert, it meant that not only would the victim smash their head off the planks while descending, but also that their deaths were not instantaneous. Eyewitness accounts consistently show that in the case of Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel, the hanging took at least 25 agonizing minutes before he eventually asphyxiated and died. 
It's been accused that many of Woods' executions didn't die from hanging, but rather a slow strangulation. Julius Stryker was an interesting death in this regard. He was led up to the gallows, and as the noose was placed around his neck, he began to shout, The Bolsheviks will hang you all one day too! Heil Hitler! He was then released through the trapdoor, and journalist Kingsbury Smith recounted the event. Quote, When the rope snapped taut with the body swinging wildly, groans could be heard from within the concealed interior of the scaffold. And after several uncomfortable minutes, finally the hangman, who had been descended from the gallows platform, lifted the black canvas curtain and went inside. Something happened that put a stop to the groans and brought the rope to a complete standstill. After it was over, I was not in the mood to ask what he did, but I assumed that he grabbed the swinging body and pulled down on it. We were all of the opinion that Stryker had been strangled to death. End quote. Von Ribbentrop's final words were, quote, God protect Germany. My last wish is that the German unity should remain and that an understanding between the East and the West will come about and peace will be for the world. End quote. Ernst Kaltenbrunner was next, and in a soft and dejected tone, he said, quote, I have loved my German people and my fatherland from the bottom of my heart. I have done my duty by the laws of my country. I regret that my people were not led by soldiers only, and that the crimes were committed in such and I had no share in it. I fought honorably. Germany, good luck. End quote. Next to climb the 13 stairs to his death was Hans Frank, the butcher of Poland. He solemnly uttered his final statement, quote, I beg the Lord to receive me mercifully. I am grateful for the good treatment I have received in prison, Unquote. And to this point, none of the Nazis broke down in tears or begged to be saved. The closest on this account was Alfred Rosenberg, who was no doubt wondering how this had gone so far, how he went from writing books to being a war criminal with only seconds to live. The man who never found a conversation he didn't like was then asked what his final remarks were. It was a simple nine. And after Arthur Seiss Inquart was officially declared dead, Woods was quoted as saying aloud, quote, 10 men in 103 minutes, that's fast work. I've never seen a hanging go off any better, unquote. The bodies were then returned to their cells and laid out on their beds. All of them were affixed with paper name tags for identification and photographic purposes. And after that fateful day, Woods proudly exclaimed to the international media, quote, Yeah, I hanged those ten Nazis, and I'm proud of it. I wasn't nervous. A fellow can't afford to have nerves in this business. The way I look at this hanging job is that somebody has to do it. Unquote. And with that, 
the Nuremberg trials were complete. Thank you for listening to this Nuremberg trial series. Anyone who has listened throughout this entire journey is much appreciated. And I will end with a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Justice is conscience, not a personal conscience, but the conscience of the whole of humanity. End quote. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Smoke-Filled Rooms kindly asks that you consider donating to the show with whatever you can offer. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded, so we have created PayPal, Patreon, and crypto appreciation jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smoke-Filled Rooms social media accounts, such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much appreciated contributions. Smoke-Filled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created, written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, and falls under the umbrella of Zink Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes is from the lovely Shari Maharaj, and cinematography for the YouTube videos was by Matthew Zink. Cheers, and thank you again for listening.